Hey friends, welcome to Happy Tears! I'm Brandon. And I'm Nick, and this is Happy Tears, a podcast where two sensitive boys talk about the art that they love so much so that it often brings them to tears. And that is the first time we've done that intro with live music. Usually it's done in post, new toys make new possibilities possible, and life is beautiful. How many stars was that intro, Nick? At least two, right? (laughs) At least. (laughs) On today's episode, the 20th anniversary of a lauded, acclaimed, legendary, some might say, album by an artist named D'Angelo. D'Angelo's Voodoo is 20 years old as of just a couple weeks ago. So we were talking about that and the new album by Andy Schauf. Yes, sir. Schauf. Like, shut your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's the best like explanation I've heard of that. Called the Neon Skyline. (laughs) This is our Andy and D'Angelo podcast. Andy and D'Angelo. Let's go. Well, as always on this podcast that is called Happy Tears in Your Ears, we start silly (laughs) today. We are silly and we start every episode with our recommendations of things we are watching, listening to, and consuming on a weekly basis. And Brandon's going to start now. Yeah. So um, the recommendation I have for this week is a bumpin' new song by Denzel Curry and Kenny Beats. They just put out a really fun new surprise project together. Sounds like they're having a blast making this. Some of it kind of reminds me of like a Run the Jewels type pairing. And this particular song is called Diet, and it's funny and it goes hard. Pamela Anderson, Pam Grier, the man's here. There's no fear, came through with no tears. I don't cry. Matter of fact, I don't lie like a bedside. To tell the truth, then I tell you. Denzel Curry kind of switches his style up on the song a lot. At one point, he sounds like DMX. And I like that. That is one thing I like about Denzel Curry is I feel like a lot of times he definitely has a style of his own, but he is able to really emulate and pay homage to rappers of previous generations. Yeah. Uh, Black Balloons is a song I really like that mm. sounds like it's very 90s hip hop in a lot of ways, like uh, uh, like LL Cool J or something. All my niggas on my side on the opposite. Get money from a show, then deposit it. No shows got no holes, I acknowledge it. Oh, wow. That's straight DMX. (laughs) It's dope. That's super cool. Yeah. Nick, what do you have for me this week? Really, my only recommendation is a movie, and I've seen it once already, but I don't know if I've talked about it. And we just did our Oscars preview. Yeah. But just two nights ago, I went and saw Little Women for the second time. Second time. I really liked it the first time, Mm -hmm. but the second time through is just wonderful like it leaps and bounds for me mostly because i think my biggest criticism the first time through was the timeline is not super linear so if you're not at all familiar with the subject matter or the the source material it's kind of hard to follow sometimes yeah it's hard to at least latch on to from the at the start i feel like right and so this time around however was infinitely you just know you kind of know the story right you know what's coming so all the really impactful scenes yeah. that Greta Gerwig, I think, intended land because you're not really confused or, or anything. So, like, you get to really get lost in the acting. I think the script, the second time through, it's just really the first time you watch a movie. is It's always hard to kind of judge a script because 
you're just lost in scenes and in the moment. And right. when it's more familiar, it's easier to pick apart a little bit. And uh, for sure, I think it's really a marvel of intelligent storytelling. It, it's it's just so warm. I, I love how, how much this family loves each other and even in the moments that they don't get along. And honestly, I was crying almost every other scene. Like it's just <laughs> the whole movie is a huge happy tear fest for me. And then, uh, but it also can flip so easily and, and you're laughing the very next moment. And, yeah. and I, I just love that about that movie. So I don't think it's going to win a bunch of Oscars, but it's a very good movie. And that's not the only measure of why things matter. So Little Women, second time through, it was in my top like 25 movies and it jumped to the top 10 after the second viewing. So big happy tear for me. And I recommend people see this movie twice. twice. <laughs> nice. So, Is it twice as nice? Yes. All right. Uh, at this time, we look back on the week and talk about happy tears. Mm -hmm. And since I just did mine, I imagine it would be your turn. Okay. Well, you got your recommendation and your happy tears. Two for in one. Yep. Twice as nice. Twice as nice. <laughs> well, mine is not one that actually happened last week, but the thing that made me have happy tears, I went and saw again. Okay. And this time I got to, I mean, same kind of experience. I got to enjoy it uh, in a different way. But the DMA has a show right now. That's the Dallas Museum of Art? Yes, it is. From an artist named Ragnar Kjartansson. Oof. Icelandic man. Nice. And he has this installation there that's like a nine channel video installation. Each screen has its own like isolated audio source. And he got some musicians together and went into this like uh, mansion in upstate New York, the beautiful surrounding and like really cool rooms. And each musician is in a separate space in the house and they're all playing this same song together, but by themselves, but they're all singing together. So like we can see them and as you kind of work your way through the room, you hear that isolated sound source of just that particular person playing, but then also other people playing throughout the house. It's a very, very cool just experience in general. And it ends up being like this really communal thing. There's something that happens towards the end of it. It's like a 64 minute long video. Yeah. It's just about community and friends and music. And when you put all those together, there's going to be happy tears. Oh, of course. The happy tears. Dynamic trio. There. Right. <laughs> the happy tears smoothie of a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, um, that's on until the end of March. Yeah. Or maybe mid-March. It's very cool. And there's a, a separate part that is also part, it's is right outside that installation, but it's, he had this practice of writing a postcard every day for like over a year. And he would, you know, have all these uh, doodles and like watercolors and all these things on these postcards about what was going on or what was on his mind. And it became this ritual. And those are all in uh, in a separate space as well. And they're really cool to go through. Like what happened in his life in that time was crazy how much happened in that year. And you kind of walk, go through it with them just by these little drawings. It's real. That's fascinating. It's great. I'm interested to go see it. Ragnar's cool dude. So he had some happy tears there. Yeah, the first time, definitely like the first time I saw it, there's moments during that it gets real. It builds a lot. And even just the first time you hear like a, a couple solo instruments and then everyone comes in and just the aural experience of that is, yeah. is nuts in the room. And then you kind of walk. Sometimes people will be soloing and you kind of like walk over to where because you hear them. Uh, it encourages you to like walk around the space and listen to people. It's very cool. All right. <laughs> Onto our, our first topic of discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So January 25th marked the 20th anniversary of Voodoo by D'Angelo, which was recorded in Electric Lady Studios, which was built by Jimi Hendrix. And many le legendary artists have recorded there since then. Really cool story about the kind of the making of this album. You have a lot of um, amazing musicians and artists in the studio at the same time in different parts of the studio. So you have like Common and uh, The Roots. Erica Badu is recording her album. And all these people are uh, kind of playing in jam sessions. And Jay Dilla's there who kind of inspired a lot of the, the sound on this album, particularly like the drum sound. But just a really cool project that came out of a lot of collaboration and jamming and, you know, people giving each other ideas and swapping songs and stuff, which I think is super cool. Uh, recorded tape and just a lot of incredible musicians. Yeah, the recorded to tape thing is pretty remarkable considering the the time that this was recorded, right? The 2000s was really, early 2000s was like the heyday when technology was converting to digital largely, right? Like in the research we did, Questlove was just talking about how everybody was at a point where they could quantize all of their beats and everything right. was just perfect. Yeah. Uh, from, you know, using digital instruments and, and technology just allows for a level of perfection that is very difficult to, mm -hmm. to achieve manually. But D'Angelo is is like a guy that still records to tape. He's an analog guy. He's an old school guy. Having not been familiar with this album really before this and, and doing all this research and, and learning about it is that this is considered a, a classic album, legendary album in many respects. Um, and musically, it's great. But I think a huge part of it, the myth of it, is what you're talking about, this kind of... Uh, the backstory of this group that kind of labeled themselves or became labeled as the Soulquarians, right? Yeah. And uh, just the kind of electric atmosphere that was at Electric Lady Studios. Oh, yeah. Um, was, it was just, it's just so cool to, to talk about and hear about, right? Yeah. I think that's part of what the allure of this album is. And plus, it was kind of long awaited after his first project. Yeah, and it just was so different. And it, it just felt different than the R&B that was coming out at the time. It, you know, incorporates funk and soul and gospel and R&B and, and hip hop in a way that like nothing else before it has. And I'm not sure anything has since. I mean, we'll get into talking about like how the, the album makes me feel. But I remember getting into this album. I think what happened was I I was super into Common. When are we talking? High school, like maybe mid high school. And then Jay Dilla came next. And then from there, I think it was D'Angelo and got into this album. And it, it's one of those for me that kind of changed the way I listened to music. Just had like a wider kind of sound palette than I was and just I was more patient with it than, um, or it developed my patience too. And being able to just so clearly hear every everyone's contribution right. and stuff too. It's just like, um, and especially a lot of just the music that was coming out at that time is just, was not that at all. And same with, I mean, even in the, the realm that he's, he's in. And so, but yeah, he takes a lot of 60s and 70s uh, music and uh, pulls a lot of that, but looks forward and makes what I think is an incredible record. And he also, I mean, yeah, they were taking techniques used in, in the seventies as well, like recording techniques and which a lot of people think that's kind of when the best sounding albums came out. I don't remember if immediately I was like super drawn to the record or just like kind of with time, I learned to appreciate it more. I was still, you know, pretty young. Yeah. But yeah, now it's one of my, one of my favorite albums. I think 
what you said about patience was really insightful because really this last week in in preparing for this podcast was my first time really diving into this album. Yeah. I think you're right that that this album it's 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 almost like you have to be an active listen. I mean, you can passively kind of let it wash over you and it's and it's nice, but I think to truly appreciate what it's bringing to the table, like you said when you're when you're actively listening for the way that the the drum beats are kind of Questlove I guess called it like drunk right yeah is the way that they wanted him to to play for this like they wanted it to have this um loose feel yeah and things details like that I think require a more active ear than maybe than I'm used to using yeah yeah and so for me I guess I'll just get into a little bit of how how I've I've been taking this album in is I've been struggling a little bit to connect with it I think because I'm not used to having to to like work, <laughs> right? And and I don't think that's a criticism of the album. It's more of a criticism of myself and and the way that I consume music or the uh, complexity of which most of my music is, which is much more simple. Well, and I don't even know if like I'm trying to think of what what that work looks like because I like you said it's active, but I think the album as a whole is just is mostly like pretty laid back and. So I don't think it's like a really hard to digest album, but I do think that maybe the flow of it, I mean, it's a longer album. These songs are longer. It's not coming out with like these, um, like R and B pop tunes. It's, it's, they're very, uh, or a lot of them are, are pretty subtle. And so, yeah, I think it is just a different listening experience that once you kind of fall into the groove of it, that's kind of when the magic happens. And I guess now listening to it, everything just sounds so natural because I've, you know, heard it so many times, but I'm also wondering what it was like for people that kind of heard this for the first time and stuff. Like when it came out? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you want to kind of dive in from the beginning? So yeah, the first track, Playa Playa, is kind of immediately got my attention. It starts off with like this, you just hear like these voices and, and like instruments that sound like this ritual and it comes from the, the title Voodoo and they, so it starts that way and then you hear these kind of like rim shots from uh, Questlove and then you just kind of settle into this like super funky. To me, I think it's just like a super laid back and cool sounding uh, song. And even just this this whole record sounds like that to me. It's like, I don't, if I'm thinking of cool, what cool is in my head, it's just like, <laughs> All of the, the sound is just, and all these players are just so cool. Right. This song was in initially recorded for Space Jam. Yes. And then uh, did not get uh, put on that soundtrack, but there's a lot of basketball themes in the song. Yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, it starts off kind of um, introducing instruments kind of one at a time and stuff, as if people were kind of coming on, on the stage one at a time. And some of the things I love, like I love the horn lines. I think they're like perfectly placed in the song. And uh, that's Roy Hargrove. He plays the horns. He plays like a flugelhorn on this album and a, on a later track too. And then just like the little guitar licks. I love this intro. It's a it's a pretty long intro song. Well, yeah, and that's I think that's another was another thing that took a little bit of getting used to for me is is how the shortest song on this record is like four minutes and 39 seconds. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's song. There are several seven plus minute songs, including this one. Right. Yeah. And so maybe it takes patience literally just to <laughs> listen to the whole thing. Cause the whole yeah. thing is like, 
an hour and 19 minutes, I think, for mm-hmm. 13 songs. I do like this track a lot. I think it's uh, just groovy. Yeah. And this I could say about most of the songs on here, it's like everyone's so locked in and instrumentally, but it all sounds so relaxed, like like it's effortless. Like 90% or higher of this album was recorded live at Electric Lady. And I read in, in one of the articles that they would like, they would jam through an entire like Joni Mitchell album or something and then just say, all right, now let's just record something like, yeah. like based off of what we just did. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, anything from like, Jimi Hendrix to Led Zeppelin to the Beatles to Joni Mitchell just kind of went everywhere and then kind of yeah. pulled in inspiration. I think that's awesome. According to Questlove, they called them Yodas. I think Yodas, as in as in Yoda. Oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like so, yeah, yeah. like the the main ones were you mentioned a lot, but like Joni Mitchell, I think Prince mm-hmm. and uh, like Al Green or something. This track sets a tone in a very cool way, like you said, like kind of the definition of cool. This play on, play on. I love that part. Yeah. Track number two is called Devil's Pie. Yeah, one of the things that stands out to me for sure is just that bass line is just amazing. Dirty. And then the DJ Premier beat on this. It was, a, yeah, originally a cannabis track. Like the beat for this was intended for cannabis and he did not like it much. And then <laughs> D'Angelo, I guess, called DJ Premier and he's like, asked him what he was doing and he had just was like uh cannabis just said no to this track and he wanted to hear it and then that's how he uh kind of yeah took it from him yeah it's pretty cool this song in particular to me another, another thing that i notice while going through this album and we'll touch on certain things is a lot of the structure of these songs is i guess non-traditional would be the word i'd use you yeah know, it's not like it's not always verse chorus verse chorus bridge whatever this song is one of the more traditional like it's got a very clear hook mm-hmm it just makes this song, I think, a little more accessible, especially you, they come out the gates with the chorus and it's catchy and it's uh, it swings a little bit. And yeah, it's got a nice swing in that his delivery on it's really, really cool. And it's just a song about, you know, falling into materialism. And he has a really cool, it was on a VH1 some like award show or I don't remember exactly what it was, but he did a live performance of this. It was just like, there was like fire involved. And instead of, you know, at this time, like he was like a, a sex symbol who they were wanting to come out and, um, you know, do the R and B thing. And he came out and was just, this was like a super fiery kind of angry performance. And it was with like amazing, the, the band he had during this time was crazy too. Like his tour band had like Anthony Hamilton singing backup vocals and then just a crazy amount of good uh, players. But that's super cool. Uh, yeah, so f- these first kind of three tracks were all have like, especially this one and the next one just have like this, you could tell the hip hop influence of it. Obviously, I was t- talking about the DJ Premiere beat, but kind of where the hip hop comes in. And then once like track four hits, it kind of takes a little bit of a different route. So is that in your eyes what makes, I'm sure there, there's lots of factors with that makes this album so great and, and celebrated. Yeah. But maybe I struggle with the fact that 
I'm guessing since this album has come out, a lot of people have have taken cues from it. Yeah. And so I guess my question is that infusion of hip hop to these other genres, more classical genres of of soul and R and B, is that a big part of what makes this, especially in the year 2000, made this kind of unique? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it had been done before and like even just within hip hop, you have like a lot of the like jazz influence, like chopping up the jazz tunes and stuff. But I think this just it was a different mix. It was like kind of a magical mix that I that I hadn't heard before. And you hear it uh, a little bit like parts of it and yeah, some of the root stuff and like Erica Badu's stuff that was coming out at this time. I think a lot of like what the album does, like pull a lot of like funk music mentality, like where there's a lot of repetition and a lot of like settling in and subtle changes kind of here and there, but it's like a lot about the feeling of it. Yeah. And I also think of kind of like, there's like a spiritual element of this too, uh, where there's like gospel music does that often is like, there's a lot of kind of repetition and then kind of bigger moments too. Cause when I talk about like not the non-traditional song structure of some of it, I think what you're getting at with the, the repetition of these grooves yeah. is is where I think, I don't know, I don't want to say I got bored, yeah. but some of these songs I do, because of the re- repetitive nature of, of some of them, it, maybe I get a little lost or just, maybe I'm just not used to listening to funk music, yeah, right? Yeah. Maybe it's just, I'm just, I don't settle into the groove like people for, more familiar with it, maybe. Yeah. I mean, especially because the way he layers his vocals on pretty much every track for the most part. Yeah. Sometimes it sounds to me like backup vocals, you know, like yeah. like a backup uh, uh, section. And I'm just like, wait, so is there ever going to be the, is the main guy going to step up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think it's just uh, maybe just not being familiar and not, not being able to settle into that groove. Maybe I just don't have any soul, Brandon, <laughs> which is the most no, terrifying. No, I think I, I know what you mean. Like going back to what the kind of funk structure of a lot of things, like if you're looking at like the meters or like even like James Brown, like there's a lot of times where there's a quite a bit of repetition and like what's being even just lyrically where it just kind of becomes like another instrument as opposed to these um, kind of like the driving lyrics being the, the focus of the song. Right. Because like especially depending on how I'm listening, like headphones versus like my Bluetooth speaker at home, yeah. in the car, in the mix, the vocals are not the most forward thing if anything it's the it's the percussion so especially being you know most familiar with like pop music which you know the 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 whole point of all that is just to push push forward whatever vocalist yeah yeah it's just yeah uh, it it definitely is a different you're using i feel like different muscles to you know like it just it feels totally different yeah you're right it's a different listening for sure and yeah i think that's specifically on this album with the the voice being kind of locked in it's just more like another instrument and not like the the guiding force of these tracks so i do have soul you do it's in there thanks my brother (laughs) um am i allowed to say that (laughs) i don't know that might be getting cut (laughs) so track number three is called left and right and features the only uh vocal guests on the album red man and method man yeah i don't have a ton to say this is i like this song it's probably out of all of them it might be my least my least favorite but i still i still like yeah i mean some of the reviews i read and kind of just said that the verses by method and red were a little out of place on this album thematically Mm -hmm. 
and so it didn't feel like it fit. And I guess it's worth noting that there was a different guest vocalist with a verse on this song that was removed and replaced with these guys. Yeah. Do you remember? Uh, do you I remember think who? it's Q-Tip. Yes, I'm not, it was okay. Q-Tip. Yeah, I think he just wanted kind of like a, a harder, kind of grimier sound, and that's what Red Man and Method Man gave. I still love the like the vibe of the song. It just I feel like it fits the least on the album. Huh. I won't steal your ball and it seems like to me won't someone to fit you perfectly. Babe, I do. So what you want? Track number four and number five are kind of are similar in tone to me, and I love both. Just like an amazing vocal intro, and then the bass line is so smooth. So yeah, I don't think we've mentioned that Pino Palladino's... Um, Pino Palladino! <laughs> he's a Welsh bass player. He's Welsh? He's Welsh. I didn't know that. Yeah, man. I know he's tall. He's tall. And he plays with my boy... John Mayer. John Coltrane Mayer. And... He's just a crazy good bass player. It's like he knows exactly, you know, when they talk about like people who have a feel, it's just like he knows exactly what to play and how to play it and never like overdoes anything on this record. His bass, yeah, they're just so smooth and so good. He's, I mean, he's played with like Nine Inch Nails, which is quite different than this, Nick. I've heard. This is what I'm gonna do, yeah. What you gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold. But I think the vocal layering and like the harmonies on this track are kind of mesmerizing. I think you're kind of mesmerizing. Yeah, there's some of them <laughs> that kind of remind me of like, uh, so like Sam Cooke or, or even like, uh, oh man. Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, Jordan Peele, us, get out, get out, Jordan Peele's get out. <laughs> That's it. And the Oscar goes too. not Jordan Peele's us because it was not nominated. Some would say it'd be slow. <laughs> Smokey Robinson. Smokey Robinson featuring Anderson Pack. The other way around. Close enough. On that song. That you know that song? Yes. But on, on yeah, so on some of these tracks, like D'Angelo's credited with multiple instruments. It doesn't say it'll have like the credits and then it'll say all other instruments, D'Angelo. So sometimes you don't know what those are. Like I'm assuming some are uh guitar and then he plays piano on this album, obviously, but I read that he didn't learn to play guitar until after this album, which is a big reason why Black Messiah yeah. s- sounds so different, was that he really leaned into learning yeah. to play guitar. And I, I don't know how much elements. of that is... Um, I heard that too, but I thought that it was like he like learned to play guitar like, like, for like, real. <laughs> like, yeah, like well enough to like be a solo. Like he would actually play in, in shows and stuff. Right. Where it was before, I don't think that was the case. Or or maybe he's just playing, you know, like uh, keys and doing, you know, synth, bass right. synth keys or something. Yeah, because he has played piano since he was three years old. Yeah, he, he grew up playing in the church and had been playing from a, a really young age. And so, yeah, the track five is called Send It On. And it has like these kind of angelic voices. Yeah, so this is one of my favorites on the album. And I don't know if it's because it sounds a little more like a kind of a traditional gospel soul. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the horn placement again, I think, is amazing on this track. Uh, and then all the instruments just sound effortlessly amazing. Send it, send it to you. Send it to you. 
yeah, I just love that. Those first vocals, those those harmonies that come in are just, like you said, angelic. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's times when it sounds like he's a choir of himself. Like, you know, he's recording these over and over and they're just layering his own vocals on top of each other in different ways and sometimes as like a call and response almost. Yeah, so this song was the first song written for this album and it came right after the birth of his son. I don't know if it was his first kid. I know he had two at the time of the recording of this. So one of the two was born right before I guess he started. And uh, I think it's just a song about passing on of like faith and happiness and like a legacy. Yeah. And uh and, and just wanting to provide for your family and this person you've brought into the world. That was my takeaway. Yeah. So yeah, I have that the in my notes, I have that the last minute of this is bliss. That the interplay of guitar, bass, horns, and voice, just kind of magical. And it, it's another one of those active listening things because some things are super subtle and, and not up in the mix at all. But yeah, really cool stuff. Yeah, maybe this is true about all music, but I found, you know, one thing I struggle with a lot, really in my entire life, but definitely in doing stuff for this podcast is you have to be active in, in the way that you're consuming stuff, right? Because we're trying to review things and, and right. have meaningful commentary. And I tend to constantly be thinking about a million things at once and I'm pretty ADD and um my life's a goddamn mess, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and my time management is terrible. But something that I found to be particularly true about listening to this album is when I was able to kind of push all of the other stuff out of the way, I was able to kind of let it wash over me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like uh, if you could empty your your cup and just Some let the music meditation fill it. Of sorts. Yeah, sort of, <laughs> really. And, yeah. and it's true about all the things. And maybe I'm just 20 episodes in <laughs> finally figuring out. <laughs> But um, no, I think you're right. But for whatever reasons, the experience specifically with this album really drove that home. Yeah, that's cool. And uh, another musician that we haven't uh, specifically mentioned yet is uh, the guitarist Spanky Alford. And you could hear his guitar playing on several songs on this album. And then he ended up, you know, playing live with him as well. And he had passed away. I don't remember at what time and in relationship to the album and touring and everything passed away. But I know that he's influenced a, a lot of guitarists, especially like in the gospel and be realm of things. And like, even in kind of the popular stuff now, you can still hear a lot of the kind of licks and um, the style that he played in was is still specifically like an Isaiah Sharkey who played with D'Angelo on his, uh, you know, touring Black Messiah. And then also with, with John Mayer now. Yeah. Um, so it's just funny. Yeah. There's a lot of crossover between, between your boy and he actually, did you, have you ever read the, uh, the letter that he sent D'Angelo? John? Yeah. No. So like in 2004, he wrote him a letter talking about voodoo and how he still, how it still uh, was kind of like a big part of his life four years later or whatever. It is funny. He said that when it came out in 2000, he stood in line at Tower Records in Atlanta at midnight to get it. And um, he was just saying now in 2004, he is no less excited listening. And then in contrast to the present age of gunmetal gray hip hop with perfectly aligned beats and blips, voodoo throbs its skin in the place of plastic and this may be luring true to you nick it says yes voodoo isn't laced with perfect pop hooks but then again it's so devoid of them that i never assumed you were worried about appeasing radio anyway its beauty and is simplicity a japanese rock garden of hip-hop and r&b and it's because of the negative space that i can still listen to it uh, there's nothing frivolous to get stuck in your head so there's nothing to want out and then he tries to sneak in and play play with them on the next record. <laughs> <laughs>
really he was a, it was a call to action because D'Angelo hadn't released anything else and wouldn't for 14 years. Right. So that's beautiful. And you know <laughs> and, how I feel about funny. John. And funny. <laughs> it just makes me feel how I felt many times as we've done this podcast. Like I am missing some receptors in my brain somewhere. <laughs> like no, how dude. do I not have a reaction like this to an album that clearly, if consensus is any measure, deserving of, of like a, a reaction like that. And it's just like, how do I train myself? Or, yeah, I just don't know. I get so frustrated sometimes. Yeah, no, I part of it too is I think that then, I don't know, I worked my way naturally into this album, kind of easing my way into what it was. Because if I had heard this, you know, before I listened to like Common and Jay Dillon and Tribe Called Quest and if it sounded unfamiliar enough, I don't think I would have worked my way in, maybe. But so you're saying I should listen to some new music <laughs> instead of Frank Ocean's Blonde for the billionth <laughs> time? What's funny is I think Blonde is kind of the same thing. I think it's like, but it, somehow it's po- it's popular too. It's like, because it's surprising. It's not a, there's some patience involved with some of those songs too. And nothing's like in your face and loud. But it is vocal forward for sure. Yeah. And that, is, you know, as far as. It's not a pop record by any means, but it's, it's got, it's, I mean, but there are some, some weird characteristics, like, uh, like oh, I'm forgetting the track, the track name, but it's the, like Stevie Wonder cover on the album. His vocals are pretty deep in the, either that or it's mixed in a really lo-fi kind of way. There's several of those on Blonde that are definitely quiet. But yeah. anyways, it's uh, a little avant-garde for, a, for how popular it is. To- absolutely. It totally yeah. is. And, and I think you're right that. I, I actually did have, in listening to all the interviews and commentary about this album, it did make me think about Blonde a couple of times. I think because of some of the things you're saying and, and the way it is non-traditional in, in its song structure, for sure, yeah. and, and, and the way he approaches music. So Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So you're saying it's okay that I only listen to that <laughs> ever. Yeah, I'm fine with that. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, so the next song, track number six, is titled Chicken Grease, and is a little change of pace. And again, I have that just Pino is so on point and so funky on this track. Do you remember what the, the song title came from? I uh, I read it on Genius and yeah. already forgotten. Yeah, I, for, I forget too, but it's, it's talking about the guitar playing, but I forget. it's probably on Genius. Yeah, Chicken Grease is a technical term uh, that originated from Prince. Yeah. Uh, so when he wanted his gu- guitarist to play a ninth minor chord while playing 16th notes... I guess he would say the word chicken grease. <laughs> There's not enough information on, on this thing, but the chord is used in the middle eight of uh, this particular song. Uh, so that's crazy. You know, he's, we talk about how D'Angelo is, he's sitting in a room built by one of his idols while writing songs completely. You know, he's like such a product of, of the people he wants to emulate. Right. And those people are like <laughs> the greatest of all time. <laughs> right, right. The Root is track number eight, and it's kind of like if you took Hendrix and meets Prince, the guitar is reminiscent of some of Hendrix's like cleaner guitar sounds. And honestly, I can so hear, I can feel John Mayer just soaking this up right now. Like, yeah, this sounds like what John 
definitely does now. Yeah. I mean, and probably was doing a little of at the time of this, but. Yeah, this says that guitar is like a heared on continuum for. Oh, yeah. But I think the, the vocal layering is super effective on this song, and the, the effects are just really crazy. And when you talk about the vocal layering, you know, going back to the analog way they recorded all this to tape. That means that they're recording, going, rewinding the tape, and he's dubbing over, over and over again. Because he's doing basically all of these vocals. It's not like he's got... They're not backup copy paste in it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not like there's other guys in the room. It's, right. it's just him laying it down, baby. <laughs> Your soul's back, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Track number nine is titled Spanish Joint. Probably the most unique track of this album, right? Yeah, so the in terms of like what kind of else is going on, but they still get it definitely has a, you know, Latin and jazzy sound. To me, like a really vibrant, kind of tight instrumentation. Still laid back, but definitely things feel very tight on this track. And I think D'Angelo kind of vocally plays off the instrumentation super well on this track. The guitar and the horns, when the horns come in, kind of drive the way the song kind of swings and flows, right? It's like you're just boogieing down a real curvy street in Havana or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe on a Vespa. I'm picturing a, uh, I don't know, you made me think of like a bobsled or something. <laughs> <laughs> but what's a uh, cool little fact about this track is uh, Charlie Hunter is playing guitar and bass at the same time right on this track. he's got an instrument that the top three strings are bass strings right and yeah. like the bottom five are guitar yeah it's an h string that's crazy he's doing it both wild yeah especially when you listen to these guitar licks i mean it's it's and this it's is the first technical. this is the first take of right them. yeah i forgot he nailed it on the first take because he was like about to leave <laughs> He was like done recording. They're like, oh wait, we forgot this other this, track. So he yeah. just fucking. And they did. It. I think they did like three takes or something, but they they stuck with the first one. That's awesome. I'm good to go to the next track. This one's called "Great Day in the Morning." Slash booty. Booty! <laughs> the longest song on the album at 7 minutes and 35 seconds. Because it's practically two songs. Not according to the track list. <laughs> I, I love the drum groove on this. I can just like, I picture Questlove's head just like the way he's bobbing and while he's playing. Right. I just envision him playing. <laughs> and I, I just really love the, the booty groove once it gets there. I am constantly fascinated with the anatomy of albums like this, like how they choose to put things together. Like you said, this is practically two songs, but for some reason they, they chose to keep it as one track yeah. and make it like the longest track on the album. And just like the, it's, it's interesting how those decisions are made and, you know, or even like the next track, which is called Untitled, but then has a parenthetical, right? which is like, 
called, you know, it's untitled parentheses, how does it feel? Mm-hmm. Well, why didn't we just call the song, how does it feel? <laughs> I don't know. He's an artist. <laughs> like, <laughs> so yeah, like I mentioned, this is the song that, I mean, changed this guy's life, right? Yeah. In a, in a pretty significant way. He was already a successful artist by many measures. Right. But they came out with this music video, which is just this, I think it's one long take, right? Or is it not? It, it at least feels like that. Yeah. And it's just him. I think in, it is though. In a like black room, basically mm-hmm. like in darkness, other than him being lit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Looking good. Yeah. Just <laughs> butt ass naked. <laughs> and you can see right above, like you can see the V, you know, the, oh, yeah. the like lower abdominal V, <laughs> but you can't see anything below it. And the camera like zooms in on his face and then comes bit, yeah. back out and then goes down to the abs and then Jamie Foxx does a really funny uh parody of this. Oh really? Yeah, it's great. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, so this this song comes out, and apparently he had like he was in the best shape of his life. Like just like four months previously, mm-hmm. he was a little thicker and like got a trainer and did the thing. And when this music video comes out, he gets immediately objectified. Yeah, <laughs> in a way that helped make him successful. Right. But also like later, once he's he like on tour and stuff, yeah, he, he really wrestled with that in a lot of ways. And I think that's part probably of why it took him 14 years to make another album. After. Absolutely. Yeah. I ran into, you know, a lot of personal hurdles after that, but, but that was definitely one thing is, you know, at the shows, they're just yelling at him to take his shirt off and he's, he's a musician's musician and he's, you know, it's like, why, why aren't they into the music part of this? My, um, a good friend of mine told me a story. Uh, he's about 10 years older than us. In his early 20s in Chicago, living in Chicago when this album came out and was like blown away by it, took a date, like an, like a first or second, like early date yeah. with this girl he was trying to, to, to mack on, as they might have <laughs> said in the 90s. Uh, took this girl to, to his concert and she, and like he described to me the effect that D'Angelo had on women. It's like they would like just lose their minds. <laughs> like that girl liked his music yeah. like fine, but like then when she was there in person was like, oh my God, oh, he he took his shirt off. I guess I need to take my shirt off. Like she literally said that to, to my friend <laughs> out loud. It's like, it's like they're mesmerized is what he said. That is it, it amazing. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like crazy the, the effect that this guy had on, I guess, women and, and just like <laughs> pop culture just yeah. out of nowhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's just like, there's a clear Prince influence here, but it just slowly builds and it gets to its kind of musical climax and it's amazing. This is one of those, I, I saw D'Angelo at the Bomb Factory. Uh, it was one of the early shows that once the Bomb Factory opened up here in Dallas, uh, or reopened. And um, yeah, just one of my favorite concert experiences ever, but this song in particular we can go into happy tears a little bit but they he just extended it out so long and it's already like kind of has that like build slowly and kind of teases you along the way factor but he extended out even more and like everyone like one person would leave the stage 
at a time and it was just really cool and you know it ended up being uh just him and maybe like it was maybe him and pino were like the last ones left but it was like a lot of musicians and they all came uh like one at a time left but they would still play and he would still be singing the the uh hook to this song and i don't know it's just super cool how it built Yeah, tell me about the final track. The final track, Africa, is definitely one of my favorite tracks on the album. I don't know what it is about it, but it's like, there's very few songs that I go to when I just want to like <laughs> calm myself or like, it has like this centering yourself, calming, really warm quality to it that I makes me kind of just exhale. Yeah, just a beautiful song lyrically as well, dedicated to his newborn son at the time. And there's an acoustic demo of this song too that we'll have to either link in the show notes or play a little bit of, but it's just, it's very similar, but again, it's just him on piano and it's uh, really amazing. And not much has changed, but you could you get the um, a little bit more of like the core element of the song. I, I love this song so much. Yeah, it's really another nice. another one for me that's like a, that has that kind of calming factor is the song Lenny by Stevie Ray Vaughan, and it's another it's a long just guitar song. Just when I need to get rid of some anxiety, Man, go, maybe I should check out two. these songs. <laughs> thoughts i mean what is what hasn't been said yeah i mean i guess i'll talk about there's just some happy tears moments that mainly come from like the transcendence kind of like choir sounding vocal airing that happen and they kind of happen from something that sounds starts off like pretty relaxed or you know there's a lot of space in the track and then all of a sudden you kind of like it floods you with these right uh vocals kind of in the same way that the happy tears i talked about earlier the ragnar installation you think ragnar uh Consulted D'Angelo? For sure. Yeah. There's zero doubt in my mind that those guys are best friends. <laughs> the funny thing is Ragnar is naked in a bathtub. <laughs> no, he's and, not. And the installation, yeah, and he gets he, out. He definitely wants that music video, though. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, this album did win a Grammy in 2001 for Best R&B Album. It did? It is currently ranked 481 on Rolling Stone's 500 greatest albums of all time. Interesting. Let me fact check that. What's even more interesting is they gave it three out of five stars when it was initially released. And it's on a lot of other people's, you know, top albums or, you know, most influential albums for them. Rick Rubin says that this is, he thinks it's a, as perfect as an album can, can get and hasn't really had that same sort of experience since it came out. Another cool thing was he brought in some some cool people into the studio and there's some video footage of like Rick Rubin in the studio when they're um, you know, he's playing them these tracks before the album was released and same yeah. with like Eric Clapton and they're just blown away. Like Chris Rock was there too. I remember. Yeah. That and, was a uh, very cool video. And there's some amazing photos of like a lot of these kind of legends all, all together. If there's like a studio session that I would love to be in, be in on just hanging out. I think this time at Electric Lady would at near the top of the list, if not the top. 
uh, confirmed number 481 on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. It also got a perfect 10 out of 10 score from Pitchfork. And I know Questlove said in an interview that he read that. And I think that that 10 out of 10 came like like years it, later. Yeah. And it was when it was the first time that Questlove kind of started to get an understanding of where this album is going to like sit in the pantheon of, of right. all albums and, and how like white so. hipsters are like <laughs> are really grabbing onto this now. Yeah, they're championing and, <laughs> the album, yeah. Being a little bit involved in the music community here in Dallas, yeah. uh, we reached out to a couple of artists that we thought we had a hunch might have been influenced or been big fans of D'Angelo and or this album. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty positive they've said that to my face, Nick. And here's our friend Larry G, who is the only one that likes us. (laughs) So for me, D'Angelo had already changed R&B with his first album, Brown Sugar. It seemed unthinkable to imagine that he would reinvent the genre on just his second album, but he did. Uh, The live musicianship was incredible and definitely influenced me in both the studio work I did and as well as the shows that I performed on stage. I'm also a hip-hop fan, so I really loved his sonic flow on songs like Devil's Pie, Left and Right, Send It On, The Root, and Spanish Joint. I think every lover of R&B, funk, and soul lost their mind when they first heard Voodoo, and rightfully so. Um, There's a lot of love put into this project, and you can feel it from the jump. I'll be forever grateful to D'Angelo for this album, as it gave me the green light to express myself musically however I felt like, with no barriers, and giving zero fucks. Voodoo is a timeless album, and will forever live on, and that's what makes it special. Andy, Andy, Angelo. And on to the Andy portion of the Andy, Andy, Angelo podcast. Also, this is coming out right before Valentine's Day. The first record we covered, some tunes that you could play on Valentine's Day. Baby making music. And this one's about, (laughs) it's titled Neon Skyline, and it's by Andy Schauf. And it's about, you know, running into a next lover at a bar in your old hometown. I called up Charlie about a quarter past nine and said, what's going on tonight? He said, no plans, but I wouldn't mind holding a lighter head tonight. All right, so Neon Skyline by Andy Schauf. Um, I have talked about The Party by Andy Schauf on this podcast multiple times. So I think it's a really fun and unique record that kind of covers different characters at one party. Uh, one evening. And this is another concept record. Um, starts out with this main character uh, asking Charlie to come to the bar, the Neon Skyline, and getting a drink from Bartender Rose. Narratively, uh, it's a l- linear story from the first track to the last. Yeah. And Andy wrote like 50 tracks for this album or something crazy like that Whoa. and narrowed it down quite a bit and even had like two they cut chopped off like at the last minute that he released as a seven inch. But it's super... Super cool just in, in the concept. Uh, he does a lot of these tracks where he just pulls from maybe some experiences in his life, but he's, you know, making up kind of these fictional stories. And I think it's really fun. And I think 
his songwriting suits that super well. For sure. And just the, the like kind of the way he sings, right? It's It's got this talkative uh aspect to conversational it. it's kind not of quite like a bob dylan kind of thing but there's a little bit of that in there maybe you've mentioned andy several times on the podcast i've mentioned him zero times <laughs> because basically what this podcast is is brandon trying to teach me to have good taste no <laughs> so yeah so this is the first thing i've heard from this guy and really starting with track one the neon skyline or just i'm sorry neon skyline i'm engaged right from the beginning i, I really love the way kind of the vocal melody I, I like every aspect of this song but the the vocal melodies and how the the uh, harmonies kind of walk up and down the the scale especially during the the verses and stuff said, come to the skyline i'll be washing my sins away airy it's a little bouncy it's um it's kind of got a sing-songy poppy vibe it's it's like um and he does this on a lot of tracks where they are he has like conversations between characters and he's like i said this she said that <laughs> yeah. yeah um but yeah this one's about the main character inviting uh you know meeting charlie at this like an an old pal at this uh bar called the neon skyline do you ever listen to matt costa yeah. The right out of the gate this track reminds me of kind of his kind of stuff. It's the doo-doo-doos. Yeah, the doo-doo-doos. <laughs> more yeah, I just think he's yeah, really really great at um at imagery and storytelling and it just like I can I have a picture in my mind of what's happening in all these songs which I think is like or super strong quality to have as a as a songwriter for sure. Um another thing to note is this is he produced this record and he played all of the instruments on it. All of them. All of them. Um, a lot of instruments, I imagine. I yeah, and counted. he goes, or that's what, I, I, I believe that to be so, yeah, he and he, I believe that on his last album too, um, but you know, he goes out and some other people play out on tour and stuff, but he, uh, he loves recording and he loves playing all these different instruments. There's a lot of clarinet, which is really fun, and on his last record too. Track number two is called Where Are You, Judy? The character's ex-lover, Judy, is back in town, and he's told this by Charlie. This one kind of has a little sadder tone to it, but I don't know. I love the ending of this track. It's still got this no, kind of moves, lighthearted sure. and... Uh, like airy a little bit. Yeah. Like a, absolutely. Some of his songwriting kind of reminds me a little bit of John Lennon, a little Beatles-y. What's interesting kind of is he, like, he. I know he loves Paul McCartney. I know, like, influenced a lot by Paul and Elliot Smith a lot, too. Yeah. And I think, like, a lot of his, like, vocal melodies remind me of Elliot Smith in the way that they're just kind of, like, they surprise me. They're not left field, but, like, a lot of his, yeah, just his vocal melodies will will surprise me as the song goes on and they're exciting to listen to because of that and you talked about him being the sole instrumentalist and i do it's a fun surprise whatever what instruments he uses track to track because yeah. he'll just you know i guess there's an element of whimsy to all of this mm -hmm. because of the like random bells and yeah and, and you know yeah it has, it has like a pet and especially like compared to his last album it has like a it's a peppier album yeah and has like these what they describe as like pitter patter drum sounds they're kind of like dry muted snare right it's just a really unique like if i heard the song without him on it i 
my mind immediately goes to him, just like the the sound of the the instrumentals on this album. Right. What is it about the ending of the song that you like? It sounds like everything drops out and it sounds like something's about to happen kind of thing. There's like an anticipated... Like it's, it's like you're watching Netflix. <laughs> it's like you're watching Breaking Bad. The way that they cliffhang every episode so well. It's like, what's going to happen next? Right. Uh, track number three is called Clove Cigarettes. And uh, this is where I throw it to Brandon. <laughs> I had a close call on the, on the happy tier at the beginning of this song because of just lyrically and the, the imagery. Yeah, so the, the first lyrics of this is Rose is smoking a clove cigarette and it takes me back to your summer dress and that green plastic table, those green plastic chairs and you touch my summer skin and I toss your golden hair. And you touch my summer skin and you toss your golden hair yeah, he's thinking about this previous relationship, and it's it all like comes to him from the clove cigarette that the bartender Rose is smoking. Yeah, I just like the like the narrative touches throughout this. I think are are really cool. I mean, it reads very much like poetry. All lyrics, in a way, do, but it seems it's like the way you read that just now read with an air of longing, you know? Yeah, so. I think especially on this song because he's kind of reminiscing it kind of comes across that way but yeah this is after he you know realizes that she's he's back in town and thinking about these pastimes some of his like uh vocal delivery and intonation reminds me of andy hole on this track and and in the past as well but from uh, manchester orchestra and specifically in his um solo project uh right away great captain because um, Andy Hole plays a lot of like more acoustic kind of slower tracks on that project, and um, yeah, some of this re- reminds me of, of like vocally reminds me of that. Um, but I think just that again, the imagery on this this song is just re- really nice. Track number five, "Things I Do." I just love like the structure of this track's really fun. It has like this kind of verse and chorus kind of repeating they happen more often this was the first single on the album and this is another flashback like the the two previous songs and it seems like this one's about him like walking in on his lover right and someone else (gasps) no bueno scandal (laughs) uh but this is probably where the actual breakup occurred um i don't have a ton more to say but i i like this track when it came out but again like the singles are really fun but it's really kind of the most effective in the, the whole context of the album because it's a concept record. Of and course, goes, yeah. Supposed to be a surprise, me showing up, you thought I was working. Why do I do the things I do when I know I am losing you? Well... Let's find out what happens on the next episode <laughs> of The Neon Skyline. <laughs> Track number six is called Living Room. Tell me about Living Room. And the tone kind of changes here. This one kind of reminds me of um, like a Nick Drake. It's there's like a lot of, it's like a real spacious sounding with an, and the guitar in particular reminds me of like a Nick Drake track. Clearer stands beside us. She is ordering a drink. She says hello Charlie says hi and asks about her boy. 
but I love the production on this song and the wind instruments are so strong. Yeah, I mean, the vibe of this reminds me a little bit of like, some of it has got some like old, like 70s soul R&B vibes. Like I'm mm -hmm. thinking specifically of like Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. Like just the instrumentation of it is just really in that vein and their voices are identical. <laughs> JK. So a new character is in, uh, introduced on this track. Her name is Claire. And it's this one's kind of just an interaction between Charlie and Andy Claire. It's it's fun. Like I, part of me wonders what it would be like if they had some sort of like music video. Visual. Uh, yeah. They yeah. went along with these because I think, I mean, it is visually strong in my head. So I think that'd be pretty fun. I mean, how hard is it to give a shit, to give a shit? To give a shit. I love that to give a shit. Like <laughs> the way he holds out to give a shit. <laughs> Again, I, the way it ends is anticipating what happens. Right. It's it's very this note that just lingers and then just kind of falls off the precipice. We had accidentally walked into some stranger's living room. And you you step up to look down, and what's next? Dust Kids, track number seven. <laughs> That's what's down there in the precipice. And this one was starts off with Charlie asked me if I believe in reincarnation. I say no, but please go on. <laughs> Charlie asked me if I believe in reincarnation. I say no, but please go on. Says I was reading about these kids They're like two years old Recalling their past lives Could you imagine if that was your kid? Rose asked if we want another Could you imagine if that was your kid? And then Rose asked if we want another <laughs> Yeah this... And then he says I'll take another life <laughs> <laughs> So uh, yeah I, I do like how this track does kind of what you were talking about earlier Like he's literally recounting a conversation But it's both fun, kind of funny, and pretty engaging as a song goes. I, I, I like it. And I guess the things here he's talking about are interesting, like two-year-olds recounting past lives. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. And I think this actually was, you know, stemmed from an actual conversation that Andy had with someone in a bar. Really? Um, and it's like one of the only parts that at least he admitted was one of the only parts of the album that came from a specific situation. That's cool. But yeah, onto the next track. Uh, the next track's titled "The Moon," and it's one of my favorite tracks on this album. Judy shows up in this song at the bar. Judy, well, we've been waiting for this whole time. We knew she was coming. Um, and the way he says we're uh, making our way to the moon and we're taking off soon. I, I love the way he says that on, or like sings that on multiple times on this track. Yeah, that's fun. I, I, I like that. It's it's short and sweet and also kind of really beautiful in its simplicity. Right. Yeah, because they're, they're talking about going to another bar, but there's a lot of like um, kind of like playful sarcasm kind of stuff going on between the characters. Yeah, I, I love the instrumentation on that hook too because yeah. the rest of the song is pretty much just that kind of swaying guitar. Yeah, riff. acoustic guitar, yeah. a little too hard I didn't think it was that funny the first time around 
Yeah, when he goes, uh, Judy laughs a little too hard. I didn't think it was funny the first time around. And then, and yeah, but so Judy, like, joins them on their, like, their shenanigans that they're kind of fumbling and had some drinks in them already. Scandal. And talking about, like, these kind of, like, awkward, nervous laughs in between people who don't know how to interact with each other. I think is really great in this as well. Universal. He knows how to speak to the common man. <laughs> she says, to be honest, I knew exactly where you'd be. And I say, making my way to the moon. And she laughs too soon. The next track was another single that came out, and I really, really love this song as well. Yeah, this is the only song I'd heard uh, previous to listening to the album. Yeah, and the storytelling was fun. This song reminds me of like a Jens Lickman song, um, and the instrumentation, and it's just You're so cool, funny and cute. <laughs> no, and I'm not saying like that sarcastically. I really mean it. I love all like. <laughs> How you constantly name drop people I've never I, fucking heard after, of. I'm, and I swear I this sounds this. sarcastic. It sounds like I'm being a dick, but I'm being totally sincere that I no, envy and admire the way, you and you're the best. Uh, well, the way I the way I said it, I thought afterwards, I was like, man, that's uh, because it's a, a hard name to say. It's like, man, I sound pretentious. No, dude, you sound great. And I just want to be you when I grow up. Ah, oh, whatever, man. I mean it. You should listen to Yen's. This it sounds a lot like it with the hand claps and the beat nature of it, especially his last album. But this one's very, you know, has a very fun chorus and has hand claps and has one of the funniest lines on the album. In verse three, it says, uh, it's talking about Judy and it says she, it says she puts her hand on the sleeve of my coat. She says, she says, I've missed this. I say, I know I've missed you too. She says, I was actually talking about your coat. <laughs> that is a great line, and the the, the delivery is way better. Than it's perfect. <laughs> the, the like, cause it it's as deadpan as you can be while still singing in melody. You know, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It reminds me of like a Dimitri Martin joke. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, like. Next song, track number 10, is called Fire Truck. I think this is, if it's the one I'm thinking of and I got to play through it a little bit, it's one of my favorites for Me sure. Me too, for sure. It's like there's a, when the chorus comes in, it is so surprising and kind of almost disorienting. It's pretty amazing. And the lyrics and imagery in this track are just so strong. It's so good. <laughs> the way the, I guess it's mostly guitar and keys. I don't know. The way it weirdly reminds me of like late Blink-182 in a way that I really like, but it's much less about dicks. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't point to a specific song, but the self-titled Blink-182 album, which is one of my favorites of all time, it's like when that band started to mature and they would do interesting guitar work that wasn't just very simple like quarter notes yeah. and things and I'm sure there are much more interesting references to music that Brandon's going to drop right now but no, I, I don't that, have this that that moment alone that where it hits and it's a little disorienting but it's 
fun and wobbly and, yeah. and I just love it so much. Yeah, it's like a um has like this kind of swirling quality to it. What is uh what's happening in the story at this point? Translate. <laughs> well it starts off with a fire truck goes screaming by and it reminds me of that night when you said you were coming home and then I waited up till four in the morning and then it's so it's there you know, thinking about a, a previous occurrence between them that uh and then she gets upset because he, he brings up this like thing when they're from their relationship that didn't seem like a good time to bring it up. But it was like the, the fire truck that was that spurred the, the memory. Yeah. And then she's like practically disregards what he says and takes his hand and says, come on, this is my favorite song. And then it goes into the chorus, the do-do-do part. God, that is super <laughs> cool because it's the best musical part on the album, in my opinion. Like, it's my favorite moment. Yeah. And so uh, the fact that he says that the line leading up to it is, this is my favorite song, is just, it's fun. I think that's my favorite aspect to this whole thing is the, the whimsy and the, the kind of fun wordplay and, and just, the, it's it's just very clever. Yeah. There's a lot of cleverness, I guess, to cleverity, if you will. <laughs> Clairvoyance? Is that really what that is? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, those don't connect, do they? <laughs> I feel real dumb today. <laughs> the 11th song on this album and the closing track is called Changer. Um, and he like repeats this like change on, changer in the, the, or on, on the song. And it seems like this is his like, he comes to this revelation that, or like realization from his interactions that like, that help him kind of put closure on the previous time and move on to another point or part of his life kind of reminds me in concept a little bit to jenny lewis's the voyager maybe it's just because he took they took a, a <laughs> verb and added an r <laughs> but now that i'm thinking about it his style there's there's a little bit of jenny lewis in there she does she has a really fun way with lyrics too i think yeah and and musically it's in the ballpark and um i like both of them so three reasons is enough Sorry, I'm getting real defensive. <laughs> I don't know why. But yeah, it's a, it's just kind of a nice closing track, and and I don't know, just like a you know come to realization that this was a different part of your life, and now you can move on. I think it's nice. Closing thoughts, closing arguments, counsel. My closing thoughts are that I think the stretch from the moon to fire truck, those three tracks are some of my favorites on the album. I love those. Yeah, I love the style of this. Obviously, he's a super talented songwriter and instrumentalist and producer. I mean, like the way he pulls all of this together and this, just the sound of the album uh, is really unique. And I will be looking forward to more. This is like a little bit more upbeat than some of his previous work. So it, it you know, brings a new vibe to the table, which is why like right when kind of hearing it from the beginning, it's a little bit more straightforward and more like acoustic guitar driven and stuff than his previous stuff. So I wasn't super immediately hooked like I was on some of his other stuff, but it's short album. Yeah. As opposed to <laughs> D'Angelo's Voodoo, much shorter. In the like 30 something minute range. 34 minutes. 34. Good number. Sure. Yeah. It was one of my favorites actually. Really? Yeah. Why? Just like, you know, football players. Which ones? Like Earl Campbell and like Walter Payton. Both 34? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I don't know. Running backs. I was just, you know, one of the kids who's real into running backs and football as a kid. Well, eight's a big number for me. Yeah. Uh, both because of my birthday, but also my two favorite players as a kid were Jerry Rice and Steve Young. Eight and 80. Nice. I can football too. How hard can you football? <laughs> How hard can you football? <laughs> I know for a fact that you can football way harder than me. Want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Happy Tears. Happy Tears is produced by Nick Melita and Brandon Henry. You can find more information at happytearspod.com. Follow us on our social media. If you type in Happy Tears or Happy Tears Podcast on any of them, you'll find us. I'm not going to give you all the things. Yeah, we have a little uh, Spotify playlist called Happy Tears Mixtape. Go and give that a follow and listen to it. We throw songs that we cover or uh, recommend on the pod onto that playlist for your enjoyment and ours. Original theme music by Homage. You can check his music out at youtube.com slash Homage Beats or on Instagram at Homage Beats. Rate and review us online and that would be super helpful and awesome. But if not, that's okay too. I think that's all for this week. Farewell! Farewell!